So this morning as we come into God's word, what are we going to learn? What did God say to you in your heart? And of course, what will you do when you leave here today? So to set the scene for the message this morning, Ken's going to bring us our Bible reading and it comes from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abdur, took their censers and put fire in them and added incense. They offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishal and Elispan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uzel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithmaelah, Amen. Got that one wrong. Do not, let your, do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes or I will die and the Lord will be angry. Uh, be angry with the whole community. But your relatives and all Israels may mourn for those, of the, those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is the lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Thanks, Ken. Some good names in there, isn't there? Our message this morning is entitled, A Teaching Moment. And I believe that this passage that Ken just read to us presents us with one of these, a teaching moment. Many of you in the education scene would probably know of this term, What does it mean, a teaching moment? Basically, a teaching moment is a moment in which a person is most ready to learn about a topic. It is the perfect moment to teach something. So teaching moments may occur when, first of all, a person is developmentally ready to learn. So how are we going? We're good? We'll get a green tick for that one. An event occurs that acts as a catalyst for learning. So what did we just read? Strike. I think... We get a green tech for that one from what the passage just read to us today. There's, there's something in there that uh, brings, us, brings some really good attention to our minds. The third one, a person has an epiphany about something. Or the last one about a teaching moment is a person develops natural curiosity about a topic. 
So I hope I've piqued your curiosity and we get a green tick with that one today as we embark on the message inside this passage today. But the third one there, a person has an epiphany about something, well, I'm hoping that by the end of this message there will be an epiphany in your heart and mind as we uh, move into this teaching moment. So let's get into it. A brief summary. Summary. Nadab and, it's pronounced Abahu. That's all good. That's, that's what I reckon anyway. Nadab and Abahu. They were the oldest and second oldest sons of Aaron, the brother of Moses and high priest of Israel. Their relation to Aaron is mentioned in Numbers, chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, as two of Aaron's four sons. And I'll just read that to you. The names of the sons of Aaron were Adab and firstborn, the firstborn, and Abihu, Elazar and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests, who were ordained to serve as priests, the four of them. Exodus 24 includes Nadab and Abihu as two of the leaders of Israel who came before the Lord. What a moment. They were given the special privilege of seeing a vision of God. And it's recorded in Exodus 24, 9 to 11. I'll just like to read that to you because this is a pretty special moment as well. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis, lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. You know, these guys, they, they were up there, so to speak. However, we read in today's passage, Nadab and Abihu, best known they were for this particular offering of unauthorised fire, as the King, New King James Version calls it, or the King James calls it a strange fire. They offered this offering of unauthorised fire before the Lord in the tabernacle. And what happened? They died as a result. As we just read in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 2, I think it's quite a sobering couple of verses. And I just want to reread it again to you. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them and added incense. And they were offered, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And what happened? They died before the Lord. I read that and I thought, oh, struth, heck, man. Why did God put Nadab and Abihu to death? Verse 3 offers the explanation. I'll read that to you. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. In other words, those who served as priests before the Lord were required to serve him honourably. If they did not, the consequence was death. In the case of Aaron's sons, They dishonoured the Lord by disobeying his command to only use fire from the brazen altar in the tabernacle. Have a look at Leviticus 16, verse 12, about that. The unauthorised fire they offered was taken from another source, not what was instructed from God. A similar penalty can be found when David and the Israelites 
attempted to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem from Kiriath-Jeram in 1 Chronicles 13, 1-10. I'll just recap this. When the Ark started to fall over, a man reached out and touched the Ark to catch it. Wouldn't you do the same? And he was immediately struck dead. Ha! Snapping ducks. Heck. Why? He was not one of the Levites God had authorised to serve in this sacred reserved role. Have a look at Deuteronomy 31.25. I'll explain that as well as 1 Chronicles 15.2. But here we are today in Leviticus. And as Steve said a, a couple of weeks ago, we're not going to get bogged down in Leviticus. You're probably saying, phew. But we are here today. And what is it we can learn today? I believe we have ourselves a teachable moment this morning. From our passage today, it may be difficult to understand such strict views regarding ceremony in our day and age. But these ways back in the Old Testament were part of how God revealed himself as holy, as holy to the people of Israel. But with the coming of Jesus, we find a fulfilment of the law, Matthew 5:17, and the curtain of the temple torn in two, offering direct access to God through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10:20. God continues to reign in perfect holiness and all who come to him through Christ. We are made part of the royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. However, can I say this morning, as part of the royal priesthood in Christ, as we find ourselves as followers of him, there continues to be an expectation, particularly around the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, for example, the, the beautiful discourse on the sermon of the Sermon on the Mount. This expectation comes in the form of a four-letter four word I want to share with you this morning. And that four-letter word is obey. Leviticus 10 that we just read this morning, verses 1 to 11, is in many ways a simple text with a simple application. Nadab and Abihu were fairly newly appointed priests who disobeyed the Lord. They serve as an example to others about God's view of willful disobedience to him. Have a look at today's newsletter and the story about uh, King Saul. Today we're going to dig in to this word obey. So let's buckle up. There's a parable that's found in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to go there. Jesus is speaking, and this is a parable that you might not be familiar with, actually. You have to understand the setting. Jesus is in the midst of challenging many of the Jewish religious leaders and teachers who are beginning to rise up against him. He has just cleansed the temple, so he's made a very strong move showing his authority over that place. In this parable, Jesus is going to actually try to challenge and he's going to try to encourage the religious leaders to see things from a different perspective. Verse 28 starts. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of John, ahead of you. 
For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. He's talking about John the Baptist. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now the religious leaders and the teachers of the law could be likened, I believe, to the second son in this story. They say yes, but in reality they don't follow through. They don't go into the vineyard and they don't follow Jesus. They simply serve the Saviour through what they say, but not through what they do. So what Jesus is giving is a scathing warning here and also a scathing rebuke to the religious leaders. This second son in the parable, when his father tells him to go to work in the vineyard, replies, what's he say? Very politely, I will. And yet, what did he do? He didn't go. He said, I will, but he didn't go. You will notice that he was courteous and he was reverent in his answer. Yep, I'll go. And yet he never followed through on his father's command. Now here's the thing this morning. Look up on the screen. I want you to understand as we do life that courtesy is not a substitute for commitment and a promise is not in place of performance. And talking about it is not a substitute for living it out. So here we have this parable. Jesus is saying... It's better to have said no at some point and then be obedient rather than it is to say yes and never follow through. Now in this scripture passage, in the phrase with this first son that scripture uses to describe him, says that he changed his mind in verse 29. It's one word in the Greek. And it actually is a word that talks all about repentance It literally means that it's an about face. It's to make a U-turn, to change direction that you're headed. A pastor I was reading by the name of Bob Goff once said that God is a lot more concerned about people who faked it than he is about people who blow it. Take that in a bit. You see, obey doesn't have to be a bad word. And so with our time this morning, we are getting there, I want to give you three benefits of being obedient. Three benefits of obedience. Now the first one, obedience empowers your witness for Christ. I mean, we will never obey perfectly because sin and temptation wreak havoc on humanity. But the more we obey and transform our minds and our hearts to the will of God, the more appealing our witness becomes to those around about us. When we live our lives in obedience to God, it shows people that we actually believe what we say. And I guess obedience can be called the antidote for hypocrisy. Even Jesus obeyed. And we see it throughout Scripture, even when it didn't seem like it made sense. There were times when he was doubting and he chose to obey. And you might say, well, when was that, Miles? Well, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't want to go to the cross, but he obeyed. He obeyed the answer that he got. We also read in Luke chapter 2, verse 51 and 52, we read about Jesus. And it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Then later in Philippians chapter 2, it speaks of Calvary and how Jesus 
we share this during communion each week, became obedient to death, verse 8, Philippians chapter 2, even death on the cross. Jesus' obedience in both life and death was a witness of who God is, an example for others to follow and obey. I just want to put a couple of verses up on the screen. You can read with me James chapter 1, verses 22 through to 24. And it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he's looked like. Who looked in the mirror this morning? Yeah. And you, you sit there or you look in the mirror and you make those alterations, you do the hair, blow the hair or, or, or whatever and do the part, whatever it looks like. You did all that before you came to church. You looked in the mirror. You might have even looked in the rearview mirror of the car when, before you got out of the car, just before you came, just to make those little necessary adjustments. I want to share with you a, a, just a brief story about this. Um, I was probably about 19 I was working in the National Australia Bank out at Kunnamulla at the time and we didn't have Zoom meetings or, or online training back then at all. I was called to Brisbane for a uh, training seminar and conference and it was right in the, in the middle of uh, Brisbane in Ann Street and I was being a country fellow, just the RM boots and uh, the jeans and so on and some of the other guys were city guys and they would come along. But while we were down there, we were getting ready to go in where the conference area was at the street but beforehand, uh, there was a fellow there, uh, his nickname became Hollywood after this particular incident, and uh, you'll see what's, what it's all about. It'll come clearer. But uh, anyway, beforehand, Hollywood had not really put himself together quite yet. He must have just got out of bed, got on the bus, and he was there. So he had, he, he had looked, we'd looked at the exterior of the building, and you know those um, mirror-faced uh, windows? There he is, looking into this reflective glass. He just stood there for a minute, got his hair just the way it's supposed to be, comb out of the top. He took, had a comb in his top pocket, took it out, did his hair, and I couldn't believe it. He had hair gel in the back pocket in a little tin as well. I thought, these city guys, I don't know about this, but anyway, he put the hair gel in, checked it all, and, um, and checked his teeth or whatever, you know, and uh, before we went inside to the conference. We started to go in, but we found that we couldn't go in the door we wanted to go into. So we had to go right back to a door that cut through what we found out to be was a restaurant. Everyone in the restaurant on the other side had been watching Hollywood do all these things. So when we had to walk through to cut through to go to the conference, everybody burst into applause as we walked through. And thus his nickname was Hollywood for the rest of the conference. I think his name was Ken at the time, but anyway, it's all good. But, you know, you've probably at times when you've gazed intently at, into the mirror or somewhere or something that you've made some adjustments to look right, to look good, to feel good, whatever that is. And there have been times when you've forgotten what you needed to make an adjustment for, I'm sure. But can I tell you this, um, something this morning? We have a Bible, don't we? We've got God's Word. And this is our mirror. And we need to look at this for the, into, the, into the Bible for the teachings to make some adjustments as we, are, as we do life. 
None of us are going to be perfect, but we're going to try to allow the, the Spirit of God to change us slowly as we allow the Spirit to get more a hold of our lives and make some of those adjustments as we look into it. And this book, as we do life, and I'm sure you've all experienced it, it's filled with many countercultural decisions that fly in the face of our society. And yet those are the adjustments that we need to make. When we see them in this mirror, God's word, we have to say, I'm willing to do it. Some of them are very counterintuitive to how we think. And you know what? The Christian life is filled with countless counterintuitive commands for us to obey. They're hard to swallow, but in time we begin to learn that God does really want what's best for us. How you love in this book, for example, is counterintuitive. We think that love is based on feelings, but Paul wrote, didn't he? Love always trusts, always perseveres. That's why in marriage love is not a passive feeling that you're going to give up on. It's a proactive decision that you're going to self-sacrifice. How you give your life to Christ is counterintuitive. You died to self in order to live for him. That goes against what we would normally think, but that's the way his word teaches. If you obey these counterintuitive commands, in time, what happens is people want to know who it is that you're living for and why you're living this way. Because when we actually obey, things change. And obedience, can I say, empowers your witness. That's number one. Second lesson this morning is obedience demonstrates your trust in God as you do life. That's what it does. It demonstrates that you truly trust in God. It's not always easy to do. A father was watching TV with his 15-year-old daughter when a program came on about death and dying and unexplained mysteries. The man was watching it with his daughter and he said, Honey, he said, Remember this, while you're young, you need to live every day as if it were your last. And she said, well, I tried that once and you grounded me for a month, Dad. <laughs> All I can say from that, parents, you've got a tough job. Sometimes God's plan, our Heavenly Father, doesn't seem to add up from our point of view as we do life at times. But he knows what he's doing because over time it deepens trust. Here's a great story. An example of this, it's in Luke chapter 5 if you want to turn there, but I'll recap it and summarise it for you. I love this one actually. Jesus is out in the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 5. In verse 3 it says that he gets into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore and then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, hey, put out in the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. I'll stop. I'm just going to stop right there. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Here we have a seasoned fisherman. And Simon Peter makes his living doing this. Now a carpenter in the boat with him is telling him where to fish and how to fish and when to fish. 
Look at this phrase. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. Simon Peter's obedience shows his trust in Jesus Christ. And I just love that phrase, but because you say so. Now, I've got to be honest when I'm reading this. So when I have doubts and when I feel like God is asking me to do something that I don't want to do, I mean, we've all probably been along this road somewhere along the line, my first response isn't always, but because you say so. I usually look for some type of loophole. I usually look for something that maybe I could inform God of and I could catch him up so that somehow he could understand a little bit more clearly what it is that I'm thinking. He hasn't got the full picture here, I'm sure. And what it is that I think I should do. Our tendency is to question why. And I'm certain that Peter wanted to say to Jesus, Hey, I've been fishing for years. I know this lake like the back of my hand. You can just imagine that going through his mind in one way. And Jesus would just be biting his tongue saying, I made this lake, I created it. You know, things don't always make sense to us. But because you say so, we will trust him. God wants our obedience even when it doesn't seem rational. Our third and final lesson this morning is that obedience shows our love for the Lord. John says that the way we show our love for God is obedience. It's not just worship. It's not just singing and praying or reading the Bible. Those things are good, don't get me wrong. And they're actually even part of obedience. But obeying God and what he asks us to do and who he asks us to be is how we show our love for him. John chapter 14, verse 15, I've got these highlighted in my Bible and you might want to do the same. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And then verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote, He who believes obeys, and he who obeys believes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most well-known discourse that he ever gave, when he was wrapping up that message at that time, he points out the importance of of obedience. We're going to close up with this today, so if I could ask the musicians to, to come forward. In Matthew chapter 7, from verse 24, Jesus concludes the teaching by telling a story about two builders. In this story, he is going to summarise and bring everything together to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. You see, the crowd could easily relate to Jesus' illustration here on that day. You might think, why? Well, because the terrain all around them, there at the Sea of Galilee, was very sandy. And during the summer month, it was hard as rock. The ground was so hard that an unwise builder could be fooled into thinking that they could just start laying down their floor and putting up their walls. The problem was it was just hardened sand. That's all it was. When the rain came down or every few years when there would be a flood in that region, it would just loosen all that topsoil. When the topsoil would begin to move, so would the walls. Pretty soon the entire house would come down. And the wise builder realised this and instead refused to believe in the stability of the hardened topsoil. He would do the hard work. Can I say that? He did the hard work of digging several feet deep below the surface sand until he hit bedrock. And then that's where he would begin building. Now I want to make certain that you catch the central point that Jesus is trying to make through this story this morning. You see, there's a difference here between the two builders. But we need to catch this. The difference wasn't that one was a church member and the other one wasn't. The difference wasn't that one of them was a leader of the church and one wasn't. The difference wasn't that one of them encountered storms and the other one didn't have storms. The difference wasn't that one had a correct doctrine and the other one had a false doctrine. The difference was this. One heard and obeyed and the other only heard. Now if we go back to Nadib, Nadab and Abihu, which one were they? They heard, they knew, but did not do. They brought unauthorised fire against God's commands. They knew what to do, but they didn't do. They heard, but they did not do. That's the difference. It's one thing to know God's plan for your life, but it's something completely different to submit to his plan and obey it. We are to trust that Jesus and his words are the firm foundation on which we build a life and a future. But you can't experience the eternal blessings of God without being obedient, is the message this morning. You have to trust and obey, for there's no other way. And that sounds like a great hymn, doesn't it? We're going to sing that together in a minute. But you know what? I get it. It's not always easy to do. So let's stand as we're going to sing this song. But first of all, there's a statement I want to read to you from the, uh, from the screen. And it says, As Christians, we try to obey God's word out of love, gratitude and commitment. And yet at times, while obedience can feel restrictive or limiting, we will feel that. We do and have. Obeying God, trust him, actually gives us life and freedom. And we thank Jesus for his grace and forgiveness for those times Yeah, we blow it. But there is this expectation to do what we've heard and not to quit. So let us pray before we sing, eh? Dear God in heaven, you are a good, good father. That's who you are. We thank you for the way that you bless us.
for the way you love us, the way that you challenge us and the way you forgive us. Lord, may we show our love for you by the way that we obey. And even when it seems difficult, it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing Trust and Obey when we walk.